people going to Soledad tomorrow. And right before the end of the lunch break, we're going to have a little small meeting with the people going to San Quentin. Okay, so we know you have thoughts, questions, offerings. We're going to try to do it in two small groups, just with those that are going, so we can get through it. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Paul is not with us this month. He is uh, leading a session, a meditation retreat, uh, out of town in Texas. He wrote to us yesterday and said, I'm in Texas. We knew he'd be away, but I didn't know where he was. Sometimes he's even farther away. Yes. Yes. So, I hurt my knee. That's why it's up here. It's wrapped in a cooling gel. I have perhaps re-injured it. We'll see. I was actually going to walk around a little bit during this presentation and do something silly in the center of the room, but that's out. So, um, Yes, that'd be great. Yeah. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, can eight people just stand in the center of the room for a second? Any eight people, and you won't be speaking, so. Yeah. Great. And just form a circle inside the circle. Okay. And then why don't we start with David, and we'll count off to eight. Great, and then would you turn around and face us and count off again? Excellent. Now before you sit down, <laughs> I have I would like to take you all on a bus tour in the land of spiritual care for the end of life. And from what I've identified and want to present today, there are eight different attractions for you to see in this land called spiritual care at the end of life. So each of you represent a whole area of the territory or a county or a what have you. And you're not even that distinct. You kind of do actually blend into each other and cross over quite a bit. So anyways, that's, that's where we're going. Thank you. You can sit down. <laughs> so... Um, I want to talk about end of life. Um, it is, death is um, part of our mortality. Death is often associated with um, the archetype of the priest or minister or clergy person, you know, along with birth. Um, death is, in some ways, you know, the ultimate renunciation or letting go. And there's also a long heritage in Buddhist practice of contemplating death. Yeah. For you as uh, people learning spiritual care, I think it's important for you to understand this territory. And I just want to, at a like bus tour level, I, unfortunately we're not going to get a chance to really get off the bus for very long at each of the eight des- destinations because I want to kind of have you see the destinations and then hopefully like a good you know, tour, you can then go back and say, okay, well, I want to go there or I've been there before or I've got to put these on my list. Does that make sense? Okay, great. It's a big territory. It's really, really big territory. So um, I'd like to take you through the different areas and 
uh, also talk about the, in general, some core ideas that cross the territories and some core activities and skills that chaplains have in these different areas. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Um, And the first one I'd like to name is loss. And as we've already been talking about with renunciation practice, there is a a change, you know, um, and when there's change, uh, when something becomes absent or changes, there is a, there's loss. So I was, I injured my knee a year ago and then I fell again yesterday. And I am so bummed because I'm worried that I've lost all the healing that I did in my knee. It was just getting better. And we were just starting to do an MRI. And so like, even with a simple, like, and then there's a loss of, oh, I'm going to be one of those people that has knee problems for the rest of my life. Oh, in 15 years, I'm going to get a knee replacement, you know, or five years, or, you know. Um, so I can feel the loss. That, and, and with loss comes grief or some emotion. And so one thing I want you to know this is this entire land, you know, is permeated by one area or something permeates through all of it and that's the experience of loss. Some people have grief about loss. Some people have relief. You know, it also could be, you know, an improvement in health and then what you've lost is your worry. You know, like it's not just all negative, but loss goes through it all. Like oxygen is going through this room. And so as a chaplain... Uh, regardless of settings, when I'm in that role or something something like it, I'm often on the lookout or sniffing around for loss, for grief. I know it's hiding in the corners. Yeah. And we're, later in the day, Christina's going to talk with us more about that. But that's just the first thing, that grief and loss. And with this, um, uh, there is theory about how people heal from grief. Uh, There are cultural norms, everything from stoicism at a death to wailing and uh, putting oneself into a grave with another, for example. There has been some pathologizing of grief in psychology, you know, Um, or there's been a progression of theories, you know, you may have heard of the stages, for example. You know, some people find that useful thinking. Other people refute that there is, you know. So there's a lot of, been a lot of psychological theory and practice around grief and loss. And you could say, you know, if to the extent that we do accept the core characteristic of life that everything changes, then well, why wouldn't we experiencing loss all the time at some level or another? You know? yeah. Whether it's car keys or time <laughs> or identity. Yeah. Yeah. Relationships. So there's a lot of loss through the territory. Does that make sense? Yeah. So some of your readings. Um, anybody do any of the, read the book that we were to do ahead of time before this class? Did you read the book? 
Oh yeah, which one? So many. Parting. So that was a lot about so much change. Yeah. The other one was um, a clergy person's reflections on end of life care. Yes, and she was a she's a Christian, I think a Protestant or yeah, okay. And uh, Adam's like, no, I didn't do the reading. Cool. You don't. It's like I don't remember. So, so this is a whole area. I know. I know. I just thought you'd want to talk to all of us. Uh, and and as I said, Christina's going to go into it more later. But I'm on the ready, you know. So here's something for you to cultivate, to develop. You know, we have like earthquake preparedness. You know, chaplains have like grief and loss preparedness. You know, we're always, it's our daily carry, if you will. You know, like those things you've got to walk out the door with every day. Well, this is like the daily carry or preparedness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, People don't always say it out loud, but it's there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or it's peeking in the windows. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another territory in this is um, just aging and illness. You know, aging and illness. You know, <laughs> a knee worn out. You know, I don't know how worn it out it is, but a worn knee. You know. Um, and within this also is medicine and systems. And so this gets very complex pretty quickly. Um, I'm remembering that, um, I don't know how long ago it was, but San Quentin, pretty sure, was the prison that was cited and got into a huge amount of trouble for the lack of medical care. Was it San Quentin? Yeah. yeah. It was taken over by federal judges. Yeah, right, you know. Yeah, so... In, in prisons, you're guaranteed food, shelter, and health care and expression of religious belief. Those are the only four things that you have to, that are protected. So, um, so you can even intersect health care with another system like education or prisons or the military, and it gets very complex. And this includes, or tangentially, uh, medical ethics, you know, which we talked about some last month, you know, along with ethics of conduct for, for chaplains. Um, there's been a great deal of progress in medicine, the, the institution in the last 150 years, you know. Um, but from a spiritual care perspective, often what we're doing is help people navigate or cope with the nature of medicine and the systems. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we're witnessing, we're advocating, uh, companioning, um, helping with decision-making, um, helping one person from a group understand what's happening on the other side of the room or you know, at least offering somebody a glass of water because we have come through this area twice and seen that they're there still waiting for care. You know. I can't even imagine what the medical care system has been going through in this area with the fires since we were last together. I mean, I, I keep thinking about all the medical workers, all the people going in, you know. So this is a whole territory. Um, and aging and illness um, also include 
another area. So I said they're all tangential, so I'll go over to the other area, which is personhood. So identity and values and norms. You know, I want all the medicine now. And I don't care how it impacts me in the short term because I want the long term. You know? Or I don't want anything, you know, let nature take its course. I've been preparing. You know, there's a whole continuum there. And this intersects with values and beliefs and family traditions, you know, like in my family. You, know, you go to yourself by the doctor if something's hanging off. You know, like I'll never forget when my husband had a procedure. His mom, she just came with us. There wasn't even a question. And then when I brought him home, I went off to get medications and she was sitting next to his bed reading a book while he was sleeping off the anesthetic or whatever. I was shocked that she was at his bedside, you know. And he, he was at the time like, you know, 55 or something, you know. I was like, that is the last thing that would happen in my family. Like, you know, they might do that when I die, you know. <laughs> um, so norms and and. And I, I was like, I don't know if I w- would want that. You know, I might be like, I can't relax with somebody else in the room. I need to go off like a wild animal. That's my way and just h- find a cave until I'm good to come back, you know. So there's a lot about identity and um, ways of doing things. And then you can add in families to that. And then you've really got uh, something very dynamic and relatively unmanageable most of the time unmanageable we can companion we can intervene there's things to do but the family stuff is so so most chaplains have some knowledge of family dynamics or family systems theory there's different theories out there such as um, uh, you know maybe thinking ahead of time about a family if I know I'm going to meet them and thinking you know oldest child or oh there's eight in the family, what does that tell me? Or uh, they're waiting until everybody's there. You know, like, there's lots of, um, or in a crisis, people sometimes go to their more baser survival instincts rather than their best Dharma intention vow. You know, like people just kind of tip over, you know. Um, So it's very unpredictable territory relationally. So that's a whole body of knowledge and experience. Um, and along with that, unfortunately, we each bring our own family ways and history kind of bumps into other people's families. You know, and sometimes it's, it goes along and other times, like, shock. Like, I came back, I was like, she pulled up a chair next to the bed and she's reading a novel while he sleeps. I, I was dumbfounded. Just dumbfounded, you know. So sweet, so loving. And he said, oh, she's always done this. Like, you know, I was, I was like, I'm still, yeah, that was a while ago. It's a great example. So you'll walk into a room, or you'll meet with somebody. It could be a prisoner who said, I just was notified that so-and-so died, or it could be a hospital room. And you can't assume how that person feels in relationship to that other person. You know, are they relieved? Uh, do they think they were already dead? You know, are they... This is their 10th visit to the hospital and they know this routine or are they completely, they came into the ER and they have no idea, they can't even believe that this is happening. You know, what's this piece of plastic around my 
wrist and I say to them that's a wristband that we put on you to help you maintain your identity and help us understand who you are while you're on the property you know like some people are so dazed you know let alone you know would you like me to pray with you that's another piece yeah does that make sense so personhood and families big 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 all right so what have I covered so far how many of the how many have I covered (laughs) sorry loss aging and illness Personhood and relationships, great. Okay. And then there's dying. So, and that's different than death. They often get, often end of life includes a lot of this, you know, particularly in healthcare. Um, So, our mortality, dying, there's an imminent death piece, there's a, of course I'm dying, I took birth, and then there's everything in between. Yeah. So there's a lot to encounter. Um, in general, we are a grief-hiding society. Grief-hiding, kind of, st- a lot of, not everyone, but there's, in general, you know, we can't really tell. You know, it used to be that people wore a particular garment or color or something, or rip to let people know before they even talked that they're a mourner, for example. You know, and now other kinds of losses aren't even visible. You know. um, and then we live in a death-denying society in many ways. You know. uh, mainly for two reasons. One is the advent of medicine. So... Um, there's a lot of healing and people don't die for the same reasons or at the same ages. And we also have uh, public safety because of the wealth of our country. So a lot of, when people do get sick or when they do die, there's people that rush in and handle it and then they leave and so the people around them don't know. You know, If we were in India, for example, on your way here today, you most likely would have walked by people who are publicly sick you know, or seen a funeral procession or heard something. You know, we don't even have hearses hardly anymore in urban areas. We have white unmarked vans. So next time you're at an intersection you see a white marked van and there's a guy in there with a suit on, that's somebody from a funeral home or a mortuary likely transporting somebody. They're not, so that's a great image that we're not even, smaller areas perhaps are less concentrated, but... So these are two big challenges. We're at grief hiding and death denying. Yeah. We're also um, the dying over time intersects with um, the law in in this particular part of the world, and estates and property and all the things, you know, all the things, and then in medicine. There's an a la carte menu now, too. You know, it used to be you got the whole, you know, pre-fixed meal because, but then after Karen and Quinlan, you know, people get to choose what they do and do not want or what's available. So um, there's now a, a lot of emphasis on helping people plan in regards to medicine in particular and to plan in terms of property because it's so burdensome particularly on the individual, 
when they're losing capacity and these things need to be attended to. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's very difficult. I noticed yesterday after I fell, I was really grouchy and I, I had these mean thoughts to people in the parking lot. And I thought, you know, like, my state of mind in this kind of, you know, ten, minute, ten minutes after I'm still in that kind of nervous system. And I felt kind of mean, you know, and I thought, oh, this is maybe why people are so mean sometimes. Out of nowhere, you know, they're hurting. They're traumatized. They're disconnected. They're grieving. They're out of control. Like, it just gave me a, a moment because I felt my own just meanness. You know, like, I, I just, I kind of wanted to just, like, I was backing out my car and I had this momentary thought of, what would it be like to hit the car behind me? You know? <laughs> That's just a, I didn't, but, you know. Um, so, it's so, the, the, as we change, it's, it's so psych- psychologically and spiritually impactful that when we're with people as chaplains, I have to keep remembering, oh, this person may look the way they looked an hour ago, a day ago, a month ago, but I have no idea what's going on inside them because of this illness, because of this loss, because of this change. You know? Seriously, it was a great reminder, like, oh yeah, that's where we can get to like the compassionate heart part, you know, but it's really quite, and there's also includes like, uh, in healthcare, there's advanced directives, who do you want to talk for you? Chaplains are involved sometimes with that. Um, this is, uh, I'm sure in prisons and jails, you know, there's so much um, that people don't feel in control about. Um, so anyways, it's a whole thing. So that's a whole other area. Then there's imminent death particularly in healthcare, um, which uh, mostly happens in hospitals, regardless or in spite of the fact that there's a lot of death happening in homes and care facilities. And there's a lot of options now. There are a lot more options than there used to be thanks to the hospice movement. But people still, for one reason or another, often, the majority, die in hospitals. It's just a, a, a data point, you know. And now, so you're going like this, so you're thinking, I don't like that, you know. I don't like that, you know. That's not what I want, yeah. So then with this comes a whole lot of values, wishes, you know. It's very, it's very tricky. It's very tricky. And w- I can even have, I know a lot. I've told a lot of people a lot. I have people in place and ready. But, you know, I still might die in a hospital. I may not have the Buddhist death that I envision. Because you know? who knows? I don't know. I don't know. I can't know. So we, there's lots of planning and then Often, the chaplain's helping people when they're like, this was not my plan. You know, like, I had another year or so-and-so was going to be here or I was going to be able to talk at this juncture and now I can't talk. You know, so there's a lot of helping people with changes. And I think there's a lot in the Western Buddha Dharma world. We've seen like this rising up of, of conscious dying and how we as Buddhists can do this. You know, 
And I think there's something really great about that. And I think there's something not so great about that. And particularly for me, okay, if I had a soapbox, I would stand on it. Uh, the, the concept of a good death, I find really offensive. And in hospice circles, people talk about this or will pose the question. And so if I had one admonition is, please be aware of the concept and how harmful it could be to bring it to another or even have somebody overhear you. You know, oh, well, she had a good death. You know, they had a bad death. Do you want to be told or people to remember that about, you know, like it's, it's so tricky. So there's all this literature and we're lifting it up. da 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 But it's, there's another part to it. Yeah. I can fail even at that. Exactly. You could do it wrong. Man, if you do it wrong, we're like a lot of disappointed people. If Gil Fronsdale doesn't have a conscious death. Exactly. Yeah. What? <laughs> Finally fails at something. <laughs> That's a subhead. <laughs> Decent. But you brought it up. Yeah. So we have to be aware of that, you know. Yeah. And meanwhile, people who are really sick and dying are really busy. They're really busy, you know. They're working so hard. It's from what I can see, there's a lot going on, you know. So to add you know, to add on when somebody's working so hard to let go, if you will. We have to be really careful about that. And the mourners around them too, but this is, this is really hard. So I, I don't want to add, you know what I mean? I don't want to add anything. I'm here to help them relax and meet and not add. Yeah. So that was my little side side box. So that's another territory. And then there's after death. It's a whole thing. What happens when somebody dies? Can we popcorn out? Like if somebody dies, what happens? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Like the, it, yeah, great. What else? And these don't have to be true of every person in every situation, but what else? What happens? I think a, a chaplain should know what happens ahead of time and think about it and prepare. They go somewhere. Okay. They remove the tubes. They take things away, right? The healthcare stops, right? Mm-hmm. Or the particular type, yeah. People start planning, right? There's decisions to be made about what to do with the body. Yeah. Timing. Yeah, yeah. And some people want to know what's next. Let's go there. And other people are in disbelief like this. Yeah, great. That certificate is filled out. Business, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> Organ donation, yeah. Death certificates take a, a couple of days. But isn't it true that... that 
there, some people want time with the body, just to be with the body. So at death, there's a question of location. Yeah. Compared to if a death happens somewhere else, you know, like in public. Like I was driving through Golden Gate Park, whole part was shut off yesterday, and I thought, there was a critical incident that happened here in the park in the last four hours because they wouldn't have the park closed. There was a whole traffic reconfiguration. And I, I just thought, you know, like something happened. Something not good happened if the police had blocked off, you know. I don't even know what it was. So location, exactly. Somebody dies, what happens? Everybody gets quiet. People start whispering when somebody dies. No matter where you are. Rituals. Rest and yeah. uh-huh. the family would hold the baby yeah. and stay with the baby Beautiful. for a while. Yeah. yeah. So those are their protocols, and this is mm-hmm. actually a Options. great aspect of medicine mm-hmm. now is there more attention to help people process and cope and have a complete mm-hmm. experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a. So, so there's ritual, rituals happen at death. Rituals. Okay. Yeah. Goodbyes. The daily life continues, that's right, you know. The mail comes and eating and, well, what about somebody else's well-being, you know. Yeah, great. Life tarries on, yeah. Yeah. Sorry? Siblings have children and Right. So families, also often at a death, families disperse. Or families gather. There's a lot to that. Yeah. yeah. And often in hospice, hospice services do slow things down, which is really nice. Yeah. And there's more people on board, if you will, to help with the multiple dimensions. Yeah. A social worker might help with, you know, what needs to happen tomorrow practically with the family, you know. And, uh, I don't know, maybe the chaplain's gathering up four more blankets to help the family stay warm while they're holding their child. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot that happens. Yeah. And then where does the body go? How does it get there? So these are all things that happen at death. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I'm sure probably a lot of us in the room have experienced being with, being at that moment or afterwards. And some of us may have not, you know, because again, we're in a death-denying society. If we were in India, we probably would have seen something related in this territory on our way here, but not maybe everybody today, or we didn't know it because it was disguised in a white van. I always pray when I see white vans and when I hear sirens too. I think somebody's having a bad day. Yeah. I'm just curious why the white van thing started. It's a great question. Why don't you research us and let us know next month <laughs> or send us an email? It's a great question. Great question.
Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, and it happens in some places more than others. Yeah. So like if you were in New Orleans where they, it's part of the culture to celebrate death, you might have heard something on your way here. But in, this, in the Bay Area where 85% of the population are considered quote-unquote unchurched or not affiliated with a religion or a church, this is more the aspect of the liberal ethos of this area, even less so than other parts of the country. Excellent. Great. That's great. That's great. Yay. And perhaps even has a funeral home associated with it that everybody uses and they have their own rituals and ways of doing things. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that there's a a funeral home in the mission district that I've taken students to that has a real Latin identity to it. And then there's one in the Richmond that has a lot of Irish Catholic dimensions to it as well as Russian Orthodox. And so the things you see and the way they do things. So my point is there's a lot to learn. There's a lot and, and to not assume. Yeah. I was interested how you did my CPE um, and chaplaincy uh, at hospice by the Atlas. And that was one of the, uh, when I was sh- shadowing the uh, chaplain around the very first two weeks, that was sort of the, one of the most important things to get from a uh, patient who transitioned into hospice was to get their identification either by patient or family of who and what the funeral home is going to be. That was sort of just an important thing to get information on. And then write down so, the uh, funeral home. Right. That was, that was just a, right. So I, I have a little joke that goes with that. Um, let me see. Who am I going to play this joke with? Who wants to be, do a little role play with me? It's really kind of weird. <laughs> Cater! So, Cater, I'm going to tell you about this new career that I'm really excited about. And I want you to ask me about it. Okay. So I'm really excited. I found a whole new career path. Yeah, tell me. I'm going to be a comedian. A what, what? A comedian. A comedian. A comedian. Comedian. It's really fun. It's really challenging. There's a lot of community. But there's one part of it that's really hard for me. Yeah? Timing. <laughs> that was pretty funny, huh? Thank you, Cater. So, this is a skill set timing. When to seek information, how, you know, there's a lot of skill. Is this the right time to ask about plans? Or is this the farthest thing from their minds right now? And if I bring it up, it will be jarring or a disconnect. Yeah. Many of the people who die here through IMC, it uh, turns out that the people near them, their family, um, don't have a clue what to do. And so part of my role is to show up and just tell them simple things. You can do this and this and this. 
and you know, and they are so happy to be told. <coughs> Yes, actually, hold that thought. She said, have you got that list? And actually, there are resources written down. Yeah. Um. I was a service at a uh, funeral home in uh, San Francisco area, and they were just like, because the Bay Area is so open and so progressive, and they were just like, yeah, what... What are your traditions? What do you want? Just tell us what to have available. You know what they were—they're like we do—we do it all. <laughs> Whatever you know, yeah. Hindu, Buddhist, right. Christian, Jewish. You know. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm sure it's taken a while to for them to gain that body of knowledge and that that way of doing things. Yeah. Um. And then a whole other part of this is the, uh, for Buddhist chaplains, in particular, some of our kind of <laughs> uh, bailiwick, if you will, is death awareness practice. You know, so we do, part of our heritage is to practice death awareness, preparedness, um, a certain way of dying or um, caring for somebody when they die, uh, different rituals um, but if you think about it the you know a, a man became a Buddha through studying change and when the monks trained with them he sent them to the cemeteries to study death they actually meditated in front of corpses to really grasp impermanence so that's part of our heritage you know like um in the Jewish heritage to to travel, to journey, to be displaced is goes way back to the earliest stories, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so this study of death or being with death is part of our heritage. Yeah. It's not true for all Buddhists, you know, <laughs> just like meditation is not true for all Buddhists. But yeah. And we're gonna do a little bit of this together uh, later in the year. Yeah. One of that is I'm doing a field trip in January called Death in the City. And for those that are interested, optional, we're going to visit two places and do some death awareness pro- uh, practice together. Yeah. Yeah. And whether you've done death, practice, death awareness practice or not, I invite you to join us, even just to be exposed to and be on that learning curve about this whole territory. Yeah. So we're going to get off the bus at that one in January optional day after our January class it will probably be cold I usually do it after this class but we're going to the prison tomorrow okay so did I is that's at least seven okay great so there's one more but I want to I want to pause I've been talking a lot And then the earlier was aging and loss. Oh, well, right. And personhood. After yeah. personhood. Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to give you this on the website. I know the bus tour goes by so fast. You're like, wait a minute. Did we really see the Eiffel Tower? 
we're already at the Arc de Triomphe? How did that happen? <laughs> you don't have to get them all right now. You, but you get the basic idea, right? Great. Super. So now I'd like for you to turn to the person next to you and tell them um, if you've noted any strong preferences or aversions uh, during this last piece of time as I've been presenting and you've been participating. You know, is there something in this that you already are like, no, <coughs> or yes, or, oh boy, I don't think I can do that, or I'm out of here. My pen just gave up the ghost. <laughs> that moment. <laughs> Christina has <Exactly>. none. <laughs> okay, so just chit-chat with somebody, and you know, the other person who's going to listen to you is going to be curious and not a vampire. Okay. I just coined that phrase at the first class, and it's like I have to live it out all year long with you guys. I know. Quiet, prettiness.
It seems to me like we're getting to know each other the more we talk to each other. Don't you think? Yeah, it's just kind of the way the buzz from you guys talking seems like there's a strengthening and a grounding compared to previous months. It's kind of nice to just feel you chit-chatting while we're chit-chatting. Yeah. So you had something to talk about and probably didn't finish talking about it. But always we want to first note, you know, our our personal competence is self-awareness. You know, what are my experiences that come to the front? Sweet memories or bittersweet memories? What are my values that are, you know, so quick or judgments that come arise so quickly, you know? What assumptions am I making already about, you know, fill in the blank? Yeah. So while I'm always learning things, I... I hope and pray that mostly I stay open to seeing myself, you know, and don't feel like I'm got it all down. That's the worst possible thing. Yeah. I remember when I the first death I attended in a hospital when I was in CPE. Um, I didn't. It was the fourth day I'd been there. I had. I was on call. You know. I was wholly unprepared. Went and did it. And the next morning, the chaplains got together, and so I was telling them about what happened, and I said, you know, out loud, I, I wasn't sure what to do, you know. I didn't know much about him, you know. So I didn't do a lot, but I was there, you know. I remember one of the other chaplains said, uh, I would rather have somebody who doesn't know what they're doing come and be with me when I died than somebody who comes and thinks they know it all. So, I, I, I'll never forget that. You probably knew him, Father Ed Murray. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he said that to me, and I, I, I'll never forget it. And he's not a Buddhist either. It's not like, oh, keep your beginner's mind. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the number one thing, you know, it's just keep learning, not be certain. Are there any burning questions that you want to make sure I get to during the second part of this? I have more to offer. The chaplain's role, what the chaplains do or the skills a chaplain needs to have, and that's what I want to talk about right now. But I, I want to make sure we're not car sick <laughs> for this last stop on the tour. Adam? So you talked about when the, when the wrong time is to bring things up. And just knowing, like, coming from a family where my feelings not really pop up, like, nobody wants to. Um, and it kind of came up with what we were talking about. Like, when is it the right time to talk about the real things? Right. Not that talking about jeopardy is not a real thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, I often uh, try to set a pace in encounters that then allows me to listen to the verbal and nonverbal and also create an invitation. So that's often what I do in order to figure that out because there's no set answer. 
You know, there's no, like, ten minutes in or after you talked about A, then you can talk about B. But it's more like how to really, you know, and so often I, I work on pace. Um, and facilitating medium to slow because this is such challenging stuff, you know. And often my facilitation will be with a family or a group is like, oh gosh, yeah, we've got three or four topics on the table now. Why don't we start with one? You know what I mean? And all of that is to slow things down. And then as things slow down, then I can kind of listen and sense or somebody else will bring it up and then I don't have to decide the timing. You know, it it comes forward naturally and that's always best. There's some open-ended questions that you can ask very gently at a certain point. You know what I mean? Um, so that, that's a whole, that's a great question, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say intuition because not everybody has strong intuition. It's not that tangible. But I think pace is tangible, yeah. So often my job is I'm going to help slow things down so that we can see clearly what's happening and then go from there. Can you give some examples of your questions? Sure. So, um, After the hello and how do you do's, you know, after like the tea bags in the hot water for a while and the tea has brewed. Okay, this is not like a the first question when I'm in an encounter, but um, you know, I every time I meet somebody here, I'm never quite sure what's on their mind, and I could make so many assumptions about you. But, um, and the person knows a little bit why I'm there, you know. But, you know, I'm wondering if it would be helpful for you to talk about what's on your mind, or sometimes I do help people think about some things. So it's a direction, right? You know, what's on your mind, or can I head this conversation somewhere or not? Does that make sense? Even more specifically around something like you mentioned, Chuck, you know, we want to find out if they have funeral arrangements made or not, right? So that's like a point on the horizon, but in in general, I would zigzag there. You know, I wouldn't aim right for it, you know, so we might get there, you know. Um, But in that area, I might, you know, timing, man, that, that particular topic is just timing, you know. Gently, you know, uh, some people, when I talk with them, have really practical matters on their minds. Some people feel like they're just turning in the water upside down, don't know which way is up and down. I'm wondering how you're doing with all that's happening is going on, you know. And so that gives somebody an invitation to go to really practical stuff. Oh, great, I do have this one thing, you know. Or like, if they turn away, I'm like, yeah, they're not, they're not in a planning or this is not the person to ask or it's not the right time you know and then I go in the kitchen probably and talk to somebody else who's like oh yeah we've got that all covered you know like you never know who has the information do you know what I mean but I'm, I'm you know very, do, are they practical person these are all things I'm trying to kind of assess and figure out yeah. is that helpful yeah great so for me style wise I think silence and space creates room for things to arise other people and in other modalities, particularly I have fine in medicine, they don't like a lot of silence or empty space. 
And so it's a very different mode, if you will. Yeah. 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 And you have like a thought. Kind of death it is. You're right. Type of. Death in the ER, sudden death, shocking, difficult death, fetal demise, and you know, a baby that's died in birth or something. People are not able to think a lot of times. Yeah, they can't so think. I'm probably even simpler. Yeah. <laughs> what do you need right now? Right. Mm. right. What can I do that would be helpful right, right now? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and there usually isn't one person, it's a group, and there will be practical people who will say, well, we really don't, you know, where yeah. can we get something to eat? She hasn't eaten, yeah. you know, yeah. it'll be something you might not even think about. Very elemental. Yeah, yeah. very elemental. I think that's true. So that depends yeah. on the setting. It does, and context. And style. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. I think my questions are <clears throat> super simple. Yeah. And, I mean, that, those are really, really yeah. good questions. I wasn't picturing them in uh, standing in an ER. But speaking of that, here's part of this. Is, um, the archetype of death. So, you know, maybe the Grim Reaper. You know, picture the Grim Reaper. And then the other archetype is the clergy person. So people associate the two together. Whether you're a clergy person or not, you might be the nearest person with a spiritual practice that's publicly known and somebody's going to, you know, and, and you're going to be like, I'm not ready, I'm not Gil, you know, but... <laughs> uh, but it doesn't matter, you know. Um, that in our thinking is so deep that um, I encourage you to step up even no matter how you feel on the inside because it's like this human wiring. If there's death... You know, there's there's a physician. It's probably the other archetype. You know, there's medicine and God when we meet the Grim Reaper. So it's just it's very so everything is magnified. That's why I think the simple stuff is so important because people everything's magnified and people do the strangest things. So they get intense that gets intense so i remember being called to the er and somebody heart had stopped and they called me and between when i was en route and arrived the person had died and so i walked in as eight medical providers walked out of the room it was almost like a revolving door like we're done and you're on. You know, like it was so archetypal. It was so... And, and they were, you know, one stopped and chatted with me and said something along the lines of, here's what happened. Didn't make it. There's a wife and a kid's on the way. You know, and that's all I, that's all I got, you know. Like, but it's that kind of magnified, you know. It's, it just changes. So being really prepared, training and flexibility, you know. And that's why that self-awareness part is so, because if I could, I could be like, why aren't they staying with me? If they were better providers, they wouldn't leave the room when the chaplain comes in. And Nina's like, I already had that thought. Why, why did they leave? You know, they should stay. You know, why are they turning this all over to the chaplain now? You know, Or I could think, This guy was so sick for so long. Why didn't he have a DNR so this wouldn't happen to him? 
What a waste of resources for him to come in and die this way. So I'm, I'm not saying that those are things I think, but this is the kind of way we need to observe ourselves. Yeah. So that whatever that is, I can hopefully uh, manage it and not you know, pass it on in some way. Does that make sense? So a lot of the clinical training for healthcare chaplains has a lot of this, what, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? What are you feeling? What are your assumptions? What are your values? What are your judgments? Not to drill them out of you, but just so that you're a little more like, okay, yeah, this is me and it's not them. I need to you know, do what I need to do. So this is a whole skill set for chaplains. Yeah. Managing, if you will, administration of <laughs> my, human, my humanity. But let me tell you some more interesting things. But that was a burning question, so thank you. Da, 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 that went to that. Any other, like, before I talk more about the chaplain skills and role? I'm noting that this is mostly about No, it's not. It's not. It's not. So a lot of the stuff I said before was just about you could encounter somebody anywhere where there's death, there's illness, there's grief, there's decision-making, there's previous experiences coming into the forefront. There's relationships. There's bias. There's culture. So some of my personal examples are from that setting. But I can picture them happening um, in a social service agency, in um, public safety, in uh, incarceration settings. You know, like you could just, I don't, I don't quite know where you're volunteering, but you could walk in and, Somebody could say, yeah, I, I just got word today my mother died. You know, like, and you're, you know, hmm, do I create something during the class about, do I create a ritual, you know? Maybe. That would be my bias, but that's just me. So is it helpful? I know some of my personal examples are, but that's my bias. I guess I just wanted to bring up the, the, um, uh, the paradox of being a chaplain or a aspiring chaplain but then also being a, a, a volunteer. Yeah. Being a volunteer. Right. And, you know, um, when, I mean, personally, sometimes I just say, even though I'm an aspiring chaplain, I say, I'm just going to be a volunteer. I just, that's what I want to do. But then where you, when you're actually working and doing that work, Draw the line right, you got to know when you're when that's over your pay grade. Yeah. You need somebody else in there, so that's a skill too. Is when do I refer, get other people involved? Yeah, totally, totally. I'm in over my head, or I need this is not my expertise, you know. And for you know, yeah, these people they need a priest. They need a Catholic priest. They need a Catholic priest. So, my primary job is to get one. <laughs> Yes. Yes. And have them in my phone on speed dial. Yes. Maybe if you can find them. Maybe if you can find them. It's pretty hard to get a Catholic priest there. Yeah. A lot of times. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a whole That's a whole thing. So here's what I can tell you. Context, context, context. It's like the three rules of real estate, location, location, location. So you need to be learning about the context that you're serving in. We can't teach you that in this course. You know, the context is everything. The family context, the physical pro- context, the uh, political discourse context, the, their religious or spiritual or 
things they value most. You know, like you got you got to get ready for caring for somebody who's, you know, really loves our current government administration. You know, so all there's a, you just have to kind of. So it'd be good to think for yourself for a moment. What context do I need to learn about to keep doing what I'm doing? Or what am I drawn to? Just think for yourself and just make a note. And you don't have to learn about them all at once, but just if you choose one, just be be great. Um, another one is... Um, Each of you is serving or volunteering in a particular way. Mm-hmm. So I'm asking you to think for yourself, to pause for a moment and think, what do I need to know more about the context in which I'm serving? Or if I'm serving in a prison, or if I'm serving the homeless, or if I'm, you know, signing up people to vote in... Um, down, oh, in the valley, you know, like whatever it is, there's a lot to learn about. I watched a webinar on um, emergency response um, chaplains, you know, and uh, one of the core messages from one of them was, "You need to know a lot about the whole arena that you're playing in, and you need to have relationships." with the people in that arena because you never know when something's going to... You know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's like, so you got you got to go introduce yourself to the police. you got to, you know, know where the schools are. you got to... You know, like, his context was kind of public safety. And so I thought, wow, I know nothing about public safety. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> you know? I, I don't think I could tell you where the nearest police station is to, you know, different areas or something like that. Do you know what I mean? I know the hospitals, but that's a little bit my bailiwick, yeah. I'm sorry to be lounging like this, but I'm just trying to get comfortable with my knee. I'm a little restless. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, I've already talked about a lot of these. Context. The vastness of death. Uh, the magnification. Um, Okay, here's a big one. Um, and this is probably as far as I'll go, but it's a really big one. Um, and then we're going to have you... Uh, the extent to which you have experienced and explored and been with renunciation, letting go, death, dying, bereavement, as far as you've gone is only as far as you can go with others. So the best caregivers in this territory are the ones who have not only experienced X, Y, and Z, but processed it or found meaning in it or have integrated it so it's not still so alive and traumatic that it it makes it really difficult to function. So, you know, I, in the context that I serve in, have an ongoing relationship with grief and grief care. And 
you know, like there's and my own grief, you know, and I've just been through a whole illness and aging and dying process with my husband's family, you know. So I mentioned my mother-in-law earlier; she died, you know, a year and a half ago. So I, this, I, I'm always looking, learning, paying attention to loss, death, dying, illness. You know, I have a, another colleague right now who's, you know, had a surgery this week and uh, waiting for test results, and uh, it could be bad, you know. And uh, I'm like noticing. I almost don't want to interact with her about the usual project that we're working on because I'm not sure if that's useful or not, you know. And then also, she's made a couple of wonky decisions in the last couple of weeks or missed some things. And I'm like, oh yeah, she's got this whole other illness going on. So, so I'm thinking too, like, things are a little unraveled, but why wouldn't they be? Because So I just have a, a sensibility. So I think... Everybody needs to develop their sensibility and keep practicing with, if you will, um, the type of suffering that is in the context that you're serving. Does that make sense? Yeah. And to anticipate and dedicate yourself to practicing with it, knowing it will never end. And you will never win. Does that make sense? You're you will fail. You will not find an end for all beings to the karmic cycle. Like, you might, I don't know, but for the most part, you know, and so to prepare for that, I I will, I, I can't, I won't, you know, or I will wear out, or, you know, like, you just, I'm thinking about in Zen, you know, we take these vows that are impossible. And the point is that they're impossible. And we take them nonetheless. You know, like this. This is impossible. Dharma gates are boundless. So picture a, the world covered with gates, and I vow to enter all of them. It's completely impossible. Beings are numberless. I vow to say them all exactly. So there's something about practicing with, and this is where, you know, this is a practice. Um, At the very end, they're going to throw dirt in my face. You know, I'm going to (laughs) die. Whoever I've become. (laughs) So anyways, that's that's, um, the spiritual practice. And the people I've seen that have a shorter shelf life or wear out, or don't do this work so well is because they've only gone so far in in their spiritual practice in the type of situations and that they you can only people can only go so far as they've been and so why is there a lot of training i think the really good chaplains have a lot of training a lot of education a lot they've been digging the well deeper and deeper of longer so there's there's they're, they're more the de- the well is deeper so, I'm not done. Is that kind of bummer news or good news or, oh crap, why bother? But I've seen this over a period of time. And the chaplains I admire the most 
are the ones who I don't I'm not really in the same you know I'm a I'm a sophomore and they're seniors and their spiritual life to me seems very solid very very grounded they have deep roots in their spiritual life You don't have to have that yet, but I'm just saying that's part of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Questions, comments? So the archetype, the magnification, timing. Is this on? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a lot of literature we had this month reading about this. And there's yeah. more on the website after today. Right. <laughs> and uh, so I'm recovering from surgery reading it. And I've, you know, I've been primary cool. caregiver a number of times and recent tragic deaths around me. And so it's, I don't feel like I'm any stranger to it. But there's a weight. And it's like, well, just plowing through it, right? And what I notice in this context is, is for me, it's like a sense of levity of being around others and, and it really invokes the recognition that it, it's like I need people I, and I would imagine like mm-hmm. in the context of uh, being mm-hmm. a chaplain mm-hmm. it's like I, I feel like I'm feeding off your hall mm-hmm. in the same content mm-hmm. that I'm very familiar with over the years I've studied it mm-hmm. been around it but alone reading about it it was like whew, you know and, and like it wasn't like the strong aversion or anything. It was pretty much the same response as I have now, except right now it's just a lot lighter. It just feels so good to not be alone. And it's, 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 I'm, my question, it seems like that's just a basic human need, I think, really in the context of exploring death yeah. and being present with it. Yeah. When I think about my loved ones that have passed and you know, the immediate check-in with others, you know. Yeah. It's like a, a buffering, I guess, would be a good way to say it. Or a bearing the weight together. Yeah. yeah it's a, you know, a different load when other people are carrying it with you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, I feel like uh, over the last few months, I've actually felt like there's been some deconstruct of what a chaplain is rather than a making sense of what a chaplain Actually, I'm finding that a little bit helpful because um, I'm getting the sense, well, I have the sense that uh, it's not about trying to figure out exactly what it is or what, what form it takes, but how to provide um, a skillful way to be. Continuing to deconstruct my idea of what a chaplain is with all this information, which is very helpful. So thanks. Compassionate improv. (laughs) 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 Or bodhicitta improv, right? (laughs) Thank you. Oh, my timing's pretty darn good. Yeah.
professional. Okay. So um, there's more on the website for you to read. Um, this is a great um, time to think about, like on a tour bus, let's go back to that area or I want to go back to that area in particular. Something to talk about with us or to write about or to talk about with your buddy or in your small groups. Um, I'm aware that this was a lightning quick tour um, and we just kind of, you know, waved. Um, but uh, I I think it's important for you to know at least the landscape as you go forward. And the books and the readings and all that stuff are different areas. And I think it's easy to think just one area is the whole thing and it's not. So, thank you for your kind attention. I'm sorry for all my wriggling. Can't quite get comfortable, so I'm going to stand while you do this next piece. So the plan is that uh, I'll meet for about five minutes with the people going to Soledad uh, now, and the rest of you can go. And then at in one hour from now, which would be, let's say at one o'clock, less than an hour, one o'clock, I'll meet with the people going to San Quentin. So that's the plan, and hopefully we'll ring a bell and let you know. But San Quentin people have to remember to come and be in here. Be done with your lunch, they're cleaning up and everything, and be in here at one. And, um, and with the aim that we're going to start in here all together as a group for the afternoon session at 10 after 12, 12 up, 10 after 1. Okay? So it gives us slightly more than an hour, the whole thing. And uh, so you all have clearance, and you, um, there are 200,000 people uh, uh, who are lifers in prison, life terms in prison in the United States. 50,000 of them are in California. And, that's, and, and when we go to these programs, we'll see, we're going to meet some of these lifers. Yes? So that we don't, so we don't get complicated here. Could you set up a table out there yeah. for for it with, sure. and then uh, and then, cool. uh, so those of you who are staying for, for to talk about Soledad, let me just stay. Okay, the rest of us will split. <laughs>